Thank you for listening to Trash Talking. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. Inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision making. And in true baller style, we'll serve it up with good old fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now, at five foot eight from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. We are thrilled to welcome Mike D'Antoni and guest host, Nate Silver, statistician, author, and founder of 538, who will be filling in for Daryl Morey today. Mike currently serves as a coaching advisor for the New Orleans Pelicans, he had an illustrious EuroLeague career playing for Olympia Milano, where he is the team's all-time leading scorer. As a coach, Mike is best known as the pioneer of the fast-paced offense in the NBA with the seven seconds or less style of play that he implemented in Phoenix. Mike has served as a head coach with the Lakers, Knicks, and Rockets, as well as an assistant coach to Coach K with the U.S. men's national team. Another really interesting fact, Mike, I didn't know that you had 659 assists in college, which is an incredibly uh, high number, coupled with scoring over 1,200 points. And my favorite point, point, of course, is that you're an academic All-American and your team was as high as eighth in the country when you, when you were playing. So, um, Mike, I am so excited to welcome you to this podcast and to have our special guest host, Nate. So, you know, selfishly, as a, as a fellow point guard, Mike, it's not really a surprise to me about how you have innovated the game of basketball, the, what you have brought from an offensive mindset and the changes have obviously permeated across all of basketball. But today we're going to cover a couple different categories of questions, obviously coaching, team building and player evaluation, and then kind of your view of what's next for the NBA. And so we're, this is going to be fun. We also have a game at the end, which, um, you know, Nate was, was a one-time guest. So um, we pro- he, that was probably where he swore I have, most. I have caffeine. Not so. sure if that increases or decreases swearing. <laughs> um, so just to, get, just to get us started, I mean, you played at Marshall, and I like to go back to that origin. But how do you think at being a player and your time at Marshall influenced your thinking around your famed seven seconds or less offense, and, which you brought to fame with the Suns? Uh, I would say a lot, only because, not only because, but we were an odd team, and we had a 6'10", 6'9", power forward that shot back shot threes, but I don't think we had threes back then, maybe the last year, but we didn't have threes, but that's where he shot from. And then we had like a six-five center, is very athletic, and could run the floor, and all the guards rebounded, everybody else rebounded. So we were kind of odd to match up with, and all we did was run up and down. Not all we did, but we ran up and down, pressed the whole game, and we got up to eighth in the nation for a team that normally is never ranked, and made it to the NCAA tournament, and maybe the second time in its history. So, you know, from there, it's just as a point guard, you felt the success and you just try to build on it. And that's one of the experiences. Then there are so many that I think goes into the whole thing. So you had that success as a player and then you made some tweaks. When do you think you started to really make the tweaks that would translate into the professional level? Well, you know, I think I laid the foundation by just playing and I always felt that when I just grabbed the ball and ran it down the floor, made one pass, shot a three, and I was in Europe at the time, that we played better. And so it's, um, um, it kind of laid the foundation for everything. 
And it just, it just, I just felt it. Then you get Steve Nash, and it's easy. I mean, that's how we're going to play. I mean, everything's got to go, and then the NBA changes rules. So everything went hand in hand before we had analytics to tell us that's the way to go. And that just, when I get, you know, analytics came on the scene, it reinforced everything I thought, even let me go further than, than normal. How come it took so long to figure this out, right? You have like highly competitive people. There's a lot of financial incentive and competitive incentive to like be the best team you can. Um, and it feels like you and, and Daryl and other people like had an edge for years before the market caught up. Um, what, what took so long? Well, there's a, in the NBA, we always say we're just you know, a bunch of sheep. Everybody does exactly what the winner did. And if you're always winning because you're the only team that plays a certain way, then everybody's going to follow you. Then you would have outliers, and that outlier wouldn't win a championship because they're like one team of 30 or 20 of 30. And so if they don't win a championship, the way you can't win that way. And I think it just permeated continuously until – Golden State actually broke the mode a little, you know, they broke it. And they show you can win that way. We tried to win that way and it came up short, but they kept saying, now you can't win that way, you can't win that way. Well, I think that's a really good point because specifically when you were with the Rockets, your 2018 team that won 65 games is considered by many to be one of the best teams to never win an NBA title. That's what great. Can, that's a great. That's a great title to have, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, again, from a trash talking perspective, it's appropriate that I would bring it up here. I only, I only say it to Daryl a few times. Uh, what what do you, what do you think we're missing on both of those teams to take to take them over the championship hump that maybe the Warriors actually had? Well, I mean, besides their champions. Uh, they have hearts of champions and all that. I, I give them that, and, and they might have beaten us anyway. But I think if Chris Paul would have had two really strong hamstrings, we we had a real shot of winning it. <laughs> That's how I get, get through life now. I'm thinking, yeah, we would have. <laughs> it's not for sure. We don't know because Golden State's a great champion, and, and they're so good. But I thought we missed our chance because of an injury. Yeah, I think uh, luck obviously plays a big role in championships. Yeah, it does. It does. So when uh, when you were with the Knicks and the Lakers, do you have like a perspective of perhaps why the systems, the systems that you had success with, with the Suns and, and, and then obviously with the Rockets, why it didn't gel as well? Well, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Um, a lot of it's mine, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you come up against personalities, you come up against guys that are set in their ways. You, you know, I don't have the pedigree to say, hey, we want a championship this way. And you try to get guys to change their games a little bit that are being paid millions and millions of dollars and they're looking like you're crazy. Um, and, you know, in New York, in each case is a little different. In New York, we were trying to, first two years, doing everything to get LeBron James in his third year when he was a free agent. And so we were constantly shuffling guys in and out to get the, the get the salary cap right. We knew we were going to lose. When Donnie came to me from, from Phoenix, Donnie Walsh, uh, the general manager of the Knicks, he told me, can you take losing for two years? That's what we're going to do. And, and I, you know, I, I was pretty happy with the way we performed and the way we were. New York's a tough place, but it was all set up to try to get LeBron. We didn't. Uh, but then that third year, we did make the playoffs, and uh, and I thought that should have won a couple of games against Boston, who eventually won the championship. But uh, we were coming on, and then just well, then New York is New York, <laughs> tough place. Yeah, so I live in New York. I can see Madison Square Garden from my apartment window. Um, <laughs> I think I moved to New York when you were coaching. Um, what makes New York tougher? Is it the media or the fans or like? the particular ownership situation of the New York Knicks or what makes it harder to, to coach and build success? You know, it's a good question. I don't think anyone's quite figured it out. I was treated really well there and everything. I love Madison Square Garden. And you would, we would have a bad team, win a couple games in a row, and I could feel the energy in the building thinking, oh, we're going. And I know we're about ready to get beat by 20, you know, because the team coming in is going to demolish us. But 
it was just, it's, it's a special place. And I, I think sometimes you just try to grab the apple too quick. You try to get there too quick and you make a couple of things that don't, that does not work out. Uh, so there's no reason it is set up to be good. The, the practice facility, the, the town, the city, the, it should be better. I, I don't know. I don't have a reason. Otherwise I would have solved it. So, uh, it's just one of those things, and it'll get right. And you need some luck, and they've had some bad luck along the ways. Maybe it's the pressure of New York City. Well, that definitely plays into it. You have to be a little different to, to play there and to withstand all that. But, you know, there's pressure everywhere. So I wouldn't say that was the main thing. The pressure is to win now, and it might be guys are trying to win too quickly. Were you surprised they didn't make the Donovan Mitchell trade? Because that seemed like the classic Nick's move. He's a very good player, obviously. Does that signal change? Should Nick's fans be optimistic? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I'd have to be there looking at it and all the ins and outs of it, so I don't even know the deals, and I don't know what went on. It's hard for me to comment. It, it would be easy for me to comment. Hard to know what's really true. Mike, what would you say was your favorite team to coach and why? Probably the season that I enjoyed the most because it was unexpected was the second year in Phoenix when Amari Stoudemire got hurt and was out the whole year. And we put Boris DL at the five and no one really expected us in the West, which was loaded to be that good. And if I'm not mistaken, we finished first or second that year and got to the conference finals. That was probably the most satisfying just because it was really unexpected. And the first year in Houston was unexpected also and moving James to the point guard and, and that kind of exploded in the right direction. And, and so that, that was great. And, but every team has their personalities, the people that you love to work with. Would you say that your experience as a point guard helped you as a coach? Did it help you connect with the point guards on your teams better? You know, to be honest with you, it's hard to, you know, you got a lot of kids out there who's your favorite. It's hard to, when you have, it's hard to have a favorite. They're all unique and they're all, you know, I enjoy coaching a lot of people. There's no doubt Then you have to sell it. I think one of the main reasons I got the job was because I was just telling them that's what I was going to do with James. And, and obviously the management and ownership believe that, okay, it might be the way to go. Um, but I didn't know that, you know, James, had, but James was so good, such a talent, his passing. And we just kept watching film and the ball would end up with him as the playmaker. So why don't we start that way? And I mean, it was kind of obviously to see it afterwards. But, uh, you know, there were some days it took a little bit of like swallowing hard uh, to get there and, and making sure that it's going to work. But James made it work. Okay, this is. So obviously you're, you've coached basketball. Um, if, if you weren't an NBA coach, and obviously we know you're an advisor today, but what, what sport would you most like to coach and why? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, I have, you know, um, what sport would I like to coach? I, I just, I'm not a big soccer guy. I was in Italy for 21 years, and I'm not, I'd get mad at the Italians because they're all there listening to soccer. And, uh, so I don't know. I like the way they're spacing and what they do and how they share the ball. So in aspects, that would be – maybe I could be like Ted Lasso. I could do that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be a perfect Ted Lasso. That would be my goal in life, yes. Do you learn – about basketball when watching other sports? Is there like some insight you're watching a hockey game or something and you're like, oh, or is it like, no? <laughs> nah, nah, I'm mostly, 90% of what I watch is basketball. If it's during the season, it's all, that's all I'll watch. I uh, try to not bore my wife too much with other sports, so she has enough with basketball. But uh, nah, I'm not that guy that can extrapolate from some other place. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about analytics uh, that obviously had has had a very significant impact on the NBA. Um, what what impact do you think uh, it should have on coaching and game planning and on roster construction? And what data did you find to be the most helpful when you're 
when you were coaching? Um, you know, I think it's a, a big tool. It's not everything, obviously, and you shouldn't. There's a, a lot of players that um, can kind of be on the outside of analytics, but um, you know, we try to model everything after the best odds to have you win, uh, and then the best. And so that's the kind of the groundwork. But when you get a Chris Paul or Kevin Durant or someone that um, can shoot the mid-range at a certain percentage, then that's good too. That's in your analytic package. But most people, I get a lot of criticism because only threes, layups, and foul shots. That's what we try. That's what I try to do as a coach to set up those scenarios. But if I get a Chris Paul, I'm not crazy. I mean, he can shoot as many twos he wants to because he shoots at about 54%. Uh, anybody that shoots over 50% from the floor, uh, effective field goal percentage, then I'll look at it and, and encourage them to do that. But if you're not shooting 50, you're a drag on the team. And that's where I ran into trouble with certain people that when they're shooting 45% and taking most of the shots, that's not going to work. We're going to have to change something, either take more threes or do something. And I, analytics helped me because it gave me the confidence to know I'm going in the right direction. And it gave me a tool to show the players and convince them how we should play as a team. And then at night, after a game is over, and Daryl or whoever would give me all the analytic material that I deemed, you know, like the, you know, the shot selection, all that. If we had good shot selection, as good as the other team, the other team just made more, so be it. I can sleep. And it was all good. So it gave me confidence as a coach. It gave me an assurance that, yeah, we're on the right path. Keep going forward and not be you know, asking my assistant coach, what we're going to do now? This is not working. We're in a, you know, we lost two games in a row. Do I need to change this up? No, everything's fine. Las Vegas loses sometimes. You know, you go there, I win sometimes. That doesn't mean I'm doing what's right. They're on the right side. I'm on the wrong side. So it just gave me confidence. Speaking of odds, you may know that Nate and 538 have the Raptor, which is basically looking at uh, the projections for, for, the, for players and the impact then, of course, on, on the team's performance. And those odds are very different than the Vegas odds. So Nate, maybe provide a little perspective there on what Raptor is and, and why we're seeing such significant differences. So uh, Raptor is a projection system that we tinker with every year. Projecting basketball is hard. Um, but we have player projections, and those roll up into a team projection where you put projected lineups and depth charts and injuries and so forth. Um, it's a weird year because we have uh, – let me count here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 teams that have a 5% or higher chance of winning. The Celtics, Nuggets, Grizzlies, 76ers, Heat, Mavericks, Warriors, Hawks, Suns, Raptors, and Bucks. No Pelicans, unfortunately. Sorry, Mike. Um, what? Well, there you go. Your mom I know. out the window. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of parity this year. All the teams, I think, at the top kind of have some question marks. Um, the Celtics looked great last night, so I'll feel a little bit better about that. Um, but, you know, they are on paper were the best team in the second half last year. They added depth. Um, they are young. I think sometimes the casual fan doesn't understand that when guys get older, there's more injury proneness. They don't improve as often, right? So, you know, not knowing anything about the coaching and management situation, I feel pretty good about the Celtics being the kind of paper favorite, right? Um, if you discount a little bit for the offseason chaos, then it's kind of a total grab bag. I mean, you know, the Nuggets are another team where um, you can see on paper they were so good last year with two of their three best players hurt, those guys are back now, right? And they have a fair amount of depth, but like, what does Jokic look like in, in the postseason, right? Um, you can understand them being the best regular season team in the West, but, you know, do you trust those 13% championship odds? So you have to take any model with, I think, a grain of salt, especially in the playoffs. That's the hard thing. Um, you have two, I mean, I want to hear Mike on this. It seems like you have almost two different seasons right in terms of the style of play and the effort level and how rosters are constructed and the coaching and so it's almost like you need a totally different model for the regular season in the playoffs 
Yeah, I think it would be hard to predict how guys, uh, the seventh game of a series versus the first game of the series versus a game in January. It's hard. To, how do you predict that? That's inside of somebody. And I, I do think champions are made with uh, heart and brains. And how do you predict that until they react to it? You know, yeah, that's why kind of you kind of stick with the champions because you know they can do it. Other people haven't done it. So Milwaukee, Golden State have done that. Um, so that, that I think it also what makes Monday morning greater. You know, when we talk about and try to predict whatever, it's hard to predict. And then you got to throw in a call here and a call there that maybe goes against uh, the way the outcome would have become. Uh, so that's why it's an exciting season, exciting to, to play. But I think you think you, you're good about predicting that. But I do think there's other factors that a team can get around that. I don't know if that makes no, I, sense or I not. I think it's tricky, too, with like veteran teams. Like the Lakers totally fell apart last year, right? Obviously. And don't look good this year either, frankly. Um, and so if you were short the Lakers last year, you look smart. If you were short the Warriors, you don't look so smart. Because um, it's not so linear, right? The models assume that an older player gets 5% worse or a younger player gets 5% better. When instead you have like break off, uh, breakouts and guys falling off a cliff, right? Um, you have a young breakout star, right? Morant or something. And all of a sudden your team is a borderline championship contender already, right? You have a guy fall off a cliff or more often now get hurt, um, play 30 games instead of 82, and your championship equity is close to zero. And so that's that's the tricky part. I think a more sophisticated system would better account for the probabilistic nature of, of performance. Um, you know, Steph Curry has kind of defied the odds for a long period of time, right? Um, some of the Lakers guys are, are not doing that so reliably anymore. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Let me ask you, is, how much does shooting play into it just to make shots? Um, yeah, I always felt that anytime we made shots, we were going to win. And when we didn't make shots, although they were the same shots, and, you know, we then it's like you get in the playoffs and it's like one game. Can you make shots the seventh game when you need them or not? To me, that's a little bit of, you know, what you have inside and have proven to be a champion or not. I mean, you know, if you watch that Celtics-Warriors series last year, uh, you know, you can see why models like ours thought the Celtics were the better team on paper, and you also saw it after the brutal road they faced to get to the finals and and what it's like to play in California with a team that's won all these championships, right, with the fans. I mean, it's, it's you know, I don't want to say they choked. I mean, it was a competitive series, but, like, but that kind of thing is real. And, in fact, there is evidence that veteran teams perform better in the postseason. And the Celtics had a fair amount of, like, playoff experience, but – but not NBA Finals experience against a team like like the Warriors, and not uh, not with kind of having already left everything on the line to to get to the finals and to go out so full effort in the second half of the season. Um, so so yeah, you kind of you can understand why uh, the conventional wisdom had a good year relative to the models in in that finals last year. And you know, I'll just to add to that, I think a big deal is once you've won one or two. There's really no, the pressure is, is off. They say it's even more, but you know how to perform yeah. at that level. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a big difference trying to get your fourth championship, which uh, Golden State did, than trying to get the first one for Boston as a, as a Boston Celtic. And so that's, it's a big psychological difference. Did you feel that in the, in the Rocket series against Golden State, that if you had that one breakthrough, then that would have changed everything? Yes. Yeah, I would have probably yeah. still been Houston. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would have changed a lot of things. <laughs> uh, how much do the Pelicans look at, at analytics? I mean, they obviously have a very bright future, even if it's not going to uh, – even if our model's a little bit skeptical this year. Um, right. What's the kind of decision-making process there? I think everything is based on a on an analytic model, um, you know, about how to maximize everybody's talents. And we do have some guys that break the mold. I mean, Brendan uh, Ingram, he 
he's an unbelievable, and with C.J. McCollum, they're unbelievable two-point shooters. And so you don't have to quite go and stretch the model as far as you need to for other teams, but you give them their reign. And, you know, Zion is is a whole new factor. He shoots, he's, a, he's in the 60% effective field goal percentage just getting to the rim. And a lot of his will come down. Can he make foul shots consistently? Can he, because he'll, he'll get fouled. So I think we have a chance. I, you know, we'll have to see how everybody plays together. But uh, uh, the future's definitely bright. they got some young players that are really, really good. Yeah, how do you, so you have a team in, in New Orleans that's, like, quite deep, right? You can go 10 or 11 guys down the roster. And, and I mean, how do you balance developing a young player while you're trying to contend? Well, you know, usually – Injuries will let you balance it okay because it's hard for a coach to go in and say, well, we need to get this guy some experience. No, you need to win. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, no, you need to win. And you're going to play the players that that day that will get you to win that game. And you hope that it, oh, through the season with the injuries and resting and, and whatever, that each player will develop and, and show that they belong. And then you have to make some hard decisions. Uh, the first game is always the hardest because you have like 11 guys that probably deserve to play. And so, and I tell them, hey guys, come to me at the end of the month that if I don't have the space and you're not playing and you don't feel good about things. But the first couple games, everybody's healthy, everybody's trying to play, everybody's winning. It's hard to play 11 to 12 guys unless somebody's coming back from an injury and you're only playing them 20 minutes. But if you have the full roster ready to go, and your stars can play 30, 35 minutes, it's hard to play 11 guys and give everybody space. So that's something the coaches have to deal with and uh, make sure they communicate that. My question for you from the early days, you adopted analytics, obviously, with players, and you mentioned using it as a tool. How are players today, because you have a number of young players on your team, how are they with respect to, say, like the acceptance of analytics? And are there certain players who are or who are thirstier for it, or are you seeing a greater percentage of players who want that information? It's getting trickier, I think, today than it did even five years ago, just because there's so many voices on the airwaves that really talk it down. I watch it all the time, and I watch commentators saying things that I'm, I'm like, no, nope, that's not quite true. You know, he doesn't need to do that. Or, you know, if you see one guy make a floater who you know can only make that at about 40% rate, well, that's what he needs to do more. No, <laughs> no, he doesn't. And so they're getting bombarded with kind of a anti-analytic theme. And I think it's too bad because I do think that analytics matches up. And I don't think there is a difference that if – you use analytics doesn't mean that Chris Paul can't shoot twos or, or Brendan can't shoot twos. Sure they can because they're great at it, but you don't want somebody not efficient taking shots that aren't efficient. And that's the whole goal. And so I think it's harder. Um, a lot of guys do, but you know, a coach has them what for not two hours a day and their barber and their commentators and their cousin has them about 15 hours a day, and I don't know what seeps through sometimes. Do the players intuitively understand the diminishing value of a possession over the course of the shot clock? Uh, that maybe a shot that you wouldn't take at 17 seconds becomes a pretty good shot with five seconds? Is that Do they get that just by playing so much basketball? Do you, do you coach that or try to encourage that? No, you coach it. No, you coach. Okay. We coach it pretty big time. Now, yeah. I think most of them get it. You know, if you ask them, do you get it? Yeah, they get it. But now do they, can they, you know, play without reservation, that speed or whatever. But we always divided the game up into four quadrants. Uh, the first eight seconds, I'm sorry, the first six seconds, and then go on. And the, we can show them that if you – Score in the first six seconds, you're like 1.3, ridiculous amount of uh, points per possession. That at the fourth, if you get to the fourth, it goes way down. Even the third, sometimes the fourth goes up a little bit. But the first two quadrants, the first 12 seconds are really important. And you've got to kind of live in that world um, to be really efficient. And and we we push it hard. That's, that's, that's probably the 
the main analytic thing that I like to see other than the percentage of open shots and all that is how the possessions, when are, when are we, you know, when do we find our shots and what quadrant do we find most of our shots and, and just try to up it and just trying to get them to, you know, because you can talk about it, but if you don't practice it, and a lot of coaches don't practice it because they want to coach. And it's like, no, you don't want to coach. You want them to go. You can coach them in the film room. You can coach them in the lunch room when you're having lunch with them. You can coach them uh, on the fly. But to stop practice and make them go half court and to keep pounding in, they play that way. And then all of a sudden you're finding shots at the end of the third quadrant or the fourth quadrant, and you're just a mediocre, with good talent, a mediocre offensive team. And to be the best, I, I really think you got to play within the first two quadrants. That checks out with the uh, with, with your philosophy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah. Anyway, no, 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 I, I was going to make but, it I, but I love yeah. that, and, I, and <laughs> but I think also you have again found these point guards who also obviously buy into this and maybe are more analytically oriented because whether it's the analytics or the feel for the game, as we've kind of talked about, um, you know, they, they've been champions of, of this, the shooting quickly. And, and I wonder in some cases, because a really experienced point guard is like a coach on the court. And so maybe there's a little bit more openness. Well, once you give them the, the freedom and know that I'll back them no matter what. And and you're right. They, they see the game also. They, they see what's going on. They understand it. And and then, if, you know, if your team has success, one of the biggest factors we had in Phoenix, I thought, when I moved Amari to the – Amari Stoudemire to the five, Sean Marion to the four, and a lot of people were killing me within our coaching staff. Even You know, a lot of people didn't think that was smart. And a lot of people were on my rear end. But we started out the gates. I think we started 31 and 4 and killing people. Well, then it's easy to sell it. And players are not crazy. They want to, they want success. If we'd have started off two and eight, I don't know if I could have held out and kept going on until you find that sweet spot. And a lot of coaches, that's why we have a league that are sheep. They do what everybody else does so they can't be criticized because they're doing what everybody else does. And if you do that, you're almost sure. One of the reasons we went small like that, Shaq was in Los Angeles at the time before he got traded to Miami. And so it's like, why would, why would we put any center against Shaq that would slow our team down a little bit, that would clog the lane up, that Shaq's going to destroy anyway? Why would we do that? Doesn't make it work. We're, we're beat before we even start playing them. So let's try Amari, where he maybe can outrun Shaq. Let's try Amari, who can shoot outside a little bit. Let's try something different to try to win, and it just happened to click. And you know, you have Joe Johnsons and the Steve Nashes and Sean Marions and Amari to make it work, and Quentin Richardson. Then, then it works. When you have all those guys, then it just comes together. And thank God for the NBA that changed the rules. You know, you can't touch them, freedom of movement and all that. So everything came together at the right time. How do you make sure you have, like, the right amount of shot taking in the lineup at any given time? Are there diminishing returns if you have too much shot taking and not enough other skills? How do you, how do you kind of construct a lineup or a roster with, with that in mind? That, uh, you know, everything is based on, you know, it's funny because I'm sure my reputation hasn't proven this, but – after a certain point, when you're really good offensively, everything's based on defense. How can we get better defensively? And all our efforts and energy went into that side of the ball. The offense took care of itself. I didn't even have to worry about that because we had the template. We knew what we wanted to do. But how do you get players that fit your offensive model but yet are great defenders and, and able to have that? Because I think a lot of the – Hearts of champion comes off on the defensive end, doesn't come on the offensive end. Everybody likes to shoot and score. But can you be the defense that you need to be at a championship level? And that's, that's a whole challenge to be able to blend that, Nate. And it's, it's a hard question to a answer that there is a, you, you know, I want five shooters on the floor at all times, but at the same time, you got to stop somebody. 
And so you have to, I think Daryl does a great job of trying to find guys that fit our model offensively, but yet our dogs, they call them on defense, is just get after it on defense. And when you can do that and you have enough rim protection, and that's something that if you go small, you don't have the rim protection, so your defense does suffer. Is there a balance there? Is your offense so good and your defense suffers a little bit, it's still a net positive. And those are things you wrestle with all the time to try to get the perfect blend to win a championship. And not always easy. It's not an easy thing to do. And I think that's where all the efforts goes, goes into. That to me is chemistry. But I, I have one more question, then we're going to switch up to a game, Mike. Um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about performance under pressure. And so my, my question to you is, do you believe in clutch performance and people who can be consistently clutch? And then to that end, is there one player who you think has, that you have coached who's been your most clutch player? Uh, yeah, I think there's a mentality that players have that become clutch players. And just because you, like I said, climbing the, the wall to success Sometimes you do fail and sometimes you aren't clutch, but then once you get it and then you play again, it's easier to be clutch. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it does. But once you, yeah, because there's a lot of pressure the first time. Then after you've won, okay, I'm there. I know I can handle this. Uh, you also, maybe it's a belief in yourself, but uh, you know, one of the, and I'm sure there's a lot of players also that, they don't get the chance to be clutch because your stars are going to have the ball down toward the end. And I'm sure that as coaches, we overlook guys that, you know, that ball should have gone over to him. I remember, I mean, Raja Bell just, uh, we would come over for a last shot. I think it was a couple overtimes with uh, the Clippers back in uh, that year. I was telling you it was a fun year, seventh game, coming back to huddle to set a last play up. And I'm sure I'm going with Steve or Amari or somebody to get it. And Raja said, give me a shot in the corner. I'll, I'll, I'll make it. Said, all right, you know, and he made it. Uh, so there are certain people that have certain things, and and a lot of people have that. And also, you know, a lot of people are still trying to find it. I love that. Do you think that it's something that's scoutable, or is it something you have? To I don't know if it's scoutable or not. You know, you just find guys that are just good. You know, I, I think most of that you just look at talent, and you know, again. You're talking about last second shots. There, most of the time, what is a 30% shot? I don't know. Of you know, it's not a very high percentage shot. So it doesn't take. You know, it might go in by luck, and you think the guy's clutch all of a sudden because it doesn't take but one or two shots. I think he's had. Now Robert Ory obviously had something. You know, he made so many big shots down toward the end, and now I was recipient of a couple of them. That <laughs> that maybe he had something. I didn't coach him every day, but obviously there's something there. Love it. Nate, you have one more on the next, uh, next, what's next for NBA offenses? Yeah, I mean, where, I mean, is there a shift back? You mentioned guys like Brandon Ingram are um, capable long two shooters. I mean, is it shifting back now toward where you're trying to use the entire court or has it already been corrected for? Where, where is kind of the, the edge in the NBA over the next five years? I think it'll shift back some because I do think that players keep getting better every year. Every every generation of players, they add something to the game, and and now you'll have back back when I think mid range there wasn't many guys that that were like super good at mid range. Now you got guys that are incredible, so you have to incorporate that in your offense and and and, re and recognize it. Um, so the players are always shifting the boundaries of what can be done. Will it even spread even further to where they're shooting now way outside? You know, we had, uh, we had a couple of players that not only are you shooting threes, they're another five feet beyond the three. Will it go further than that? Probably. You know, I don't know where there's got to be a boundary somewhere. That gives you more floor to work. So I think you just... I think where it'll go, you'll incorporate everything. And every team will be unique, and players will be unique, but you're going to have more players being more mid-range just because of their skill level. Well, I like to hear that. I'm a big fan of the mid-range jumper. 
<laughs> what? Well, there you go. So you could now, you, you would have trouble already. You as a point guard, and me as a coach. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get a one-on-one game going. Um, okay. Mike, what changes would you make to the NBA right now in terms of rules? Are, are there, are is there anything specific that really jumps out that you think would enhance the level of play, or, or the? I mean, obviously, we we know it is quite competitive this year, uh, as Nate mentioned earlier. I, well, I think, first of all, the game's in a great place, and I don't think it's ever been better. Uh, and it keeps, to me, it keeps getting better because the players keep getting better. Um, a rule that I've always liked, I'm glad they put in the the intentional foul rule now to stop fast breaks. I think that'll help the the, the showbiz side of the sport, watching spectacular layups, dunks, whatever, and fast breaks. Um, I always liked the European rule where you, the ball hits the rim, it's a live ball. You could either offensively throw it back in while it's on the rim or you can knock it off. Um, I, don't need, I don't understand the reasoning to not have that because um, nobody goes away from a game thinking any fan thinks that, well, man, they only scored 99 points instead of 105. That wasn't a very good game. You know, but the object of being able to take the ball off the rim or throw it in is to give freedom for the offense, first of all, to have spectacular dunks, dunks and not worry about if it's goaltending or not. And defensively, it will ignite a lot of fast breaks that are fun to watch and, and also to be able to take it off. And it's, it's an exciting play. And I think the NBA should adopt that. So I thought 10 years ago they should have adopted it, but you know, I was in coaching sessions and coaches kind of shot it down. There were a few for it. A lot of them weren't, but I definitely think we should add that. Well, I think this is a good interlude into our into our game. So game time. Uh, Mike, we have a game that's called Bench Trade or Tag, as in franchise tag. So it's similar. It's our twist of kiss, date, or marry. So we'll give you three options, and you need to say what you will bench what you will trade, and then what you will tag. So tag is the best, trade is the worst, bench is in the middle, and you need to say why. So we'll start with rule changes for the NBA. We'll do the one that you just mentioned, the, the, live, the live ball at the rim, the Elam ending, and then one free throw for all free throw trips. So obviously I'm for the Nate, Nate going to hone in on this one? I mean... I like the Elam ending, but yeah, <laughs> I know for everybody. I used to like the one free throw, but for some reason now I thought about it and, it and it it bugs me. It seems like it's like tinkering with something that like doesn't need to be tinkered with exactly, but I don't know. I'm with you on the foul shot. We do it in practice, uh, one to make two, all that stuff, or one shot. If you get three, if you make it, counts two points or three points. I like that they shoot them. Uh, I just think it's, I don't know, I just, I, just, I, that, that's, I would trade that one. At the ending of a game, I kind of, what do y'all call it? What's the e- name Elam. of it? Elam ending. It's Elam. named after Nick Elam. I, I like it. That's a big change. So I'd be very careful with it. I'd probably bench and just study it, maybe really try it always in the G League for a while, see how you like it, maybe over a couple of years. Uh, and then go with it. But I'd bench that one and I'd definitely put in the goaltending rule. All right. Now, thank you. I love that one. Okay, now we're going to talk about a coach that you've learned the most from. You ready for this? Coach K, Frank Johnson, not sure how much exposure, how much there, or Carl Tacey, who is your co- one of your coaches at Marshall. <laughs> All three great guys. Um, and I think you learn something different from every, every coach. And, you know, Coach K, just because his most recent and also one an unbelievable coach, but just how he handled everything, how he confronted problems, how he made themes of getting guys together and fighting for a purpose. And I thought off the court he was – in which you could see he would be great leading Coca-Cola or Pepsi, whoever he wanted to lead as a corporation, he would be fantastic because he was a leader of men. 
Um, and then Carl Tate always has a special place in my heart. There's only one year with him, but that's when we played the best. I had a coach in, uh, in Europe, Dan Peterson, who is an American that's been in Europe forever, coached me for about eight seasons in Milan. And he, uh, he taught me a lot of things about how to, how to treat your point guards, which I was, how to get the best out of me. He re resurrected my career. Um, so there, every coach, you know, I've had so many coaches. If you if you want to do some things, see how many coaches I've had. It's it's. I had three in college, two two or two in high school, actually four in college. One recruited me, never did to coach me. Uh, my first year in the NBA, I had two. I had, and I, then I changed teams about four times. So I've had, you know, from Doug Moe to, you know, Bob Cousy to, to a lot of stuff. And I I think, as a coach, everything's in there somewhere. And who it is and who gives it to me, who knows. But it either brings out the best in you, the worst in you, whatever it is. Uh, they're all responsible for what happened. I, I love the insights on Coach K. What, what did Dan Peterson te teach you about how to treat point guards? What was it that like stuck with you? Just gave, gave me the confidence to, to affect every game that I played. And to go with me, even if I remember one real quick episode uh, we were playing in the European Championships, and he would he would always play me 40 minutes. 40 minutes is the entirety of the game. He would never take me out. I'd have to break my leg for him to take me out. And he he went with. Then the papers. I had a bad outing. We lost. Papers and they're they're brutal over there as they are, are in a couple cities in, in the United States. But they they're tough, and they were killing me and him. And he stood right up to him right after the game. I remember he goes, I'm telling you what, Mike's going to play every second of every game. He's going to make every determining pass. And if you guys don't like it, the heck with it. That's what I'm doing. And just gave me, like, when they asked me, I go, hey, you know, coach, I'm doing what he says. He took all the pressure off me, took it on himself, and just backed me 100%. He gave me so much confidence as a player that I did become a good clutch player. I did become... You know, we won about five championships, and it was because of what he instilled in me. That's awesome. I think, I, I mean, I would love to end with that story. Nate, if you have another one, we can throw it in there. But I, I that's just a, such an incredible insight into something that was formative for, for how you have so successfully uh, coached teams and groomed point guards to, to be just outstanding change agents. You just got to be really careful when you talk to point guards too. They have so many decisions to make and so many things going on that if you put doubt in them or you question this or question that thinking you're helping them, I'm thinking it's over coaching and you just got to be very careful with them and treat them as the important part of, you know, it's an important role in every team and you've got to, you got to nourish that. Mike, you're talking to, I was gonna say you're talking to two point guards of, of companies right now. I feel like you have a whole circuit around around coaching CEOs going on. <laughs> yeah, it's important. We did have one question in the prep doc about his favorite pasta sure. dishes, which I, I kind of felt might be a good humorous note to end on. <laughs> I don't know if it's humorous because I think it's very serious. <laughs> so <laughs> when I when I first went to Europe. Italy, landed in Milan, and I'm from West Virginia. My mom is Italian, not Italian, but she cooked a lot of Italian dishes, and but nothing like I experienced when I got to Italy. But spaghetti alla carbonara, like blew me away. That blew yeah. me away. But just the Sorrentina that my wife makes now, in Treviso, I've said I could eat pasta every day, every well, I did for 21 years, every day, every meal, every two meals. So it is incredible the pasta dishes, but <laughs> I miss that. I'm, I'm right now, I'm hungry. So I'm after I'm finished, you we got some leftover spaghetti that I'm going to have here in a second. I think we're, we might need a list of uh, the best Italian restaurants in every city that you go to. <laughs> well, there's, there's a bunch of them, but if you're in Houston. There's there's some good ones there. There's some good ones everywhere. I don't want to just I'm name in Boston, one, but so and dates in New York, so we can talk about Boston, that. I have, actually, I had guys on my staff would have to scout them out, <laughs> and they they have the best. I would just show up and eat. <laughs>
Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Nate, thank you so much for joining as a guest thank host. You, this was such an awesome of conversation. Course. All right. That was so fun. Nate, thank you for filling in. Uh, you're Definitely. awesome. I have to say you brought a more analytic approach than even Daryl does. No, I think I think Daryl doesn't want to give away the game too much, right? You know, I'm just a media guy, so I can I can like talk shop and no trade secrets to worry about. Well, we got a lot of great a lot of great insights from from Mike, and so I'm going to share just a couple that for me really resonated, and then you know you can you can chime in too. But you know, first and, and foremost, he's just a players coach, right? Yeah. How he yeah. empowers how he empowers his players. I loved hearing about how he has used analytics as a tool for the players. And it was also interesting to hear about this anti-analytics um, component, which I, I would have actually thought that athletes would be more interested in it, especially with all of the insights on, that they're getting about, like from Whoop and the other tools that are out there for training. So, so that was pretty surprising to me. I love the concept of um, having a model for the for the post for the regular season and postseason, which I actually think you you all do. But his understanding that it's two different seasons uh, was was really really fascinating to me. And the last part that. I think obviously stuck out, uh, you know, we've talked, we talked about it on your podcast, but about performance in, in clutch situations, the role of the coach in helping to create that. I don't know if there have been any analytic models specifically incorporating the coaches and the transitions of coaches. And I think in particular with your Raptor model this year and where you hold the Celtics when they have a transition, and uh, head coaches, maybe this is a, a unique uh, opportunity to see the, that influence. Yeah, it's a unique kind of natural experiment in the case of the Celtics. Um, although you also have the coach and and the system, right? I mean, he was a first year coach last year, outstanding coach. Um, but maybe the system's able to produce other outstanding coaches at the same time. The difficult thing there, if if they had just fired. The coach, that's one thing, right? But you have kind of this coach in waiting, and it would seem like it's very difficult. Um, but I don't know. I mean, they looked they looked great last night, unfortunately, for Daryl. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe they have a chip on their shoulder because expectations are skeptical. And I don't know. I mean, that's where you would have to talk to Mike or be in a fly on the wall in the locker room to get a sense for what the player's mindset is. Yeah, those expectations, I thought, is something we look at on the business side, on the fan side, in terms of the fan demand and the interest in the team. So it was also really interesting to hear from Mike that his his season that was the most fun is when the, the expectations were low and, and they ended up uh, you know almost going to the, the finals. So um, any other takeaways from you? Thank you so much for your time. No, I, I endorse Carbonara. I, I'm glad that... Uh... <laughs> It's one of my favorite pastas too. So yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna have to get the best one in New York and the best one in Boston and try both the try both of those restaurants together soon. Uh, absolutely. All right. Thank you. Here's the data.